Imagine That Studios, in association with Ace Books, presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 3 The official anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences Eliza, please make a note. Case number 1896-0414-USA has now been declassified. It is ready for public consumption. You mean the one the agents of awesome are calling Dawn's Early Light? Americans, dramatic as always. Yes, that's the one. Already did it this morning. You know, Wellington, I've been thinking... Oh, dear. ...how we are quite lucky. I like to think so, considering all our recent activities. But what made you bring that up right at this moment? Is something going to explode? Not as far as I'm aware, no. What I was referring to was having Director Sound as our superior, rather than this plonker. Oh, this file is from the 70s. I think Director Spring was in charge of the Ministry back then. Yes, and he seems like quite the dry stick. He and I would not have gotten on at all. Sound is far more my speed. Even though he demoted you down here to the archives with me? I'm still deciding how I feel about that. It might turn out that he had his reasons. I'm sure he will be delighted to know that. Not a word, Wellington. Or there might well be an explosion down here after all. And Why the Sea is Boiling Hot by Michael Spence London, 1871 Simon Ravensdale, DSC, OBE, was taking his daily constitutional through Hyde Park when the bullet tunnelled through his heart. In the bright spring morning with mothers, nannies and infants out for sunshine, no one noticed the spry, elderly gentleman suddenly halt and clutch his chest. Only after he fell to the walkway like a stone, a growing pool of blood beneath him did someone take notice. A girl of about 15 saw the gentleman up ahead fall. Her mother would have had a cardiac episode of her own to see how quickly years of training and proper conduct were so carelessly tossed aside as the girl pulled up her skirts, ran to the fallen man and knelt, skirts and all, in the blood. The doctor, 70 yards away, however, was of a different frame of mind. Confirming the young lady's suspicion that the gentleman was in fact deceased, he complimented her on keeping a cool head and directed her to find the nearest policeman. When she was on her way, the doctor examined the gentleman again both front and back. The cause of the death was a gunshot. The exit wound was hard to dispute. Two problems called that conclusion into question, however. One, no one had heard a shot, nor seen anyone fleeing the scene, as one would expect a gunman to do. Indeed, no one had seen any person near the decedent who might have been the shooter. Two, with a gunshot victim, one would not be surprised to find an entrance wound without an exit, but not the other way round. What kind of bullet could leave a body without first having entered it? But I don't understand it, old man. Are we talking about a new kind of ordinance or an incompetent physician? 
Charles Dodgson, MSC, perched on the laboratory stool, his ongoing experiment in the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, London Laboratories, all but forgotten. He was alone in research and development on this particular day, Dr Bullfinch, his superior, being still on holiday, as were other three members of the R&D staff. Field agent Hugh Carpenter shrugged and leaned against the laboratory bench opposite. Ah, too soon to tell. We secured the scene, retrieved Ravendale's body, took Dr Quincy back to his surgery, swore him to secrecy in the name of the Crown. Fa-la-la, you know the song. I'd be surprised if anyone else at the park knew something unusual took place. Well, other than someone killing over dead, of course. But it isn't as though that's never happened. Do you think the doctor will keep quiet? Who knows? I don't suppose we should assume he will, particularly not after a few days of official quiet. Which is why Director Spring has ordered us to conclude this matter post-haste. Carpenter's eyes alighted upon a cabinet at the end of Dodgson's lab bench, and a grin spread his lips. But if that bottle beside the hydrochloric acid contains what I think it does, and you're willing to share it, I'll tell you what I believe is going on. Dodgson sighed. And you told me hiding in plain sight was a sound strategy. He plucked the regent bottle from between its fellows, found two clean beakers, and poured each of them two fingers of scotch. Perhaps against an investigator less skilled than your obedient servant, Agent Carpenter said with a chuckle. He sipped and let out a relaxed breath. Oh, thank you. Always welcome after dealing with puzzles. You've got a hypothesis? Well, first someone suggested he'd been secretly fed a new kind of gun, one that somehow took up station in his chest. And when the time was right, bang. <laughs> An interesting idea, that. And I can imagine you blokes in R&D taking it as a dare. But then we found the bullet. And had to put that proposal on the rear burner. He reached into a vest pocket and handed a small chunk of metal to Dodgson. An ordinary bullet. Five from a Queen Anne pistol. Perhaps of the pocket variety. You can see the traces from the rifling in the barrel. But think of it. Skin, said Dodgson, holding up fingers as he ticked them off. Layer of fat, muscle, sternum, heart. No, no place for even a gun barrel. And then you need a chamber and a firing mechanism. So assuming this is truly the bullet that killed him, and it is, eh? Not misdirection from something else. Carpenter shook his head. We know which way Ravensdale was facing when he fell, and so we know the direction of the bullet. Let's lay along that path exactly. Occam's razor, this did the deed. So, no secret new gun... The bullet came out of him with nothing to show how it got into him. Yet it did so, and without touching anything. Carpenter grinned. Here's where it gets interesting. You have got to be joking. Well, all right. Helpfully interesting. A friend in the war office told me the other evening. Dodgson raised an eyebrow. Would this friend have been male or female? Oh, what is that to do? Oh, very well, female. Dodgson leaned back, a smug expression pulling the side of his mouth. Just wanted to make sure you were being consistent, his friend snorted. <laughs> At least I have a social life. And apparently an informant. Do continue. Well, it seems there's this hush-hush project at the war office. She didn't know exactly what, but this high muckety-muck Clankerton, Ludovic, I think his name was, is running it. She was trying to open a stuck closet door one day when his nibs passed her desk. He grabbed the knob, yanked it open, and then said something like, Just wait. One day no door nor wall shall hinder your research. Disturbing was how she summed him up. Dodgson pursed his lips. The wall? Well, that sounds... 
A knock sounded on the glass panel of the laboratory door and a clerk stuck his head in. Agent Carpenter, you wanted in the director's office. Carpenter frowned. Here's my report. What else? No idea. Do let me know when you find out, eh? Late the next afternoon, the laboratory door burst open. Congratulate me, said Carpenter, striding in with a bottle in hand. I joined the Ministry to see the world, and now I've even seen the War Office. Dodgson looked up from his work. It sounds as though the director actually said more than three sentences to you. Bizarre, isn't it? Carpenter plucked two beakers from a shelf, glanced a question at Dodgson, who nodded, and then uncapped the bottle and poured for both of them. Usually it's, here's your mission, Miss Yellowboy, as the details do try to keep the door from striking his leave. This time he said he was assigning me to the war office, to Lord Dewhurst himself. That project we talked about, I'm to guard it. Dodgson took a sip and released a sigh of quiet ecstasy. If this drink was any indication, then Carpenter relished his new posting. The one with Sir Carroll? Indeed, I met them both this morning. The man surprised me, I dare say. Carpenter's high spirits were undeniable. His clothing and hair were both dishevelled as though he had barely slowed down on the way back. He's one of your crowd, a mathematician. Teaches at Cambridge. Makes up a new logic systems. Works with something called N-dimensional geometry. Won more than a few prizes for it. And yet, surprise, we talked. He's not your usual ivory tower sort. You know, the kind with two options as far as conversation goes. Their pet topic or deathly silence. I've read some of his papers, Dodgson replied. In truth, he'd done more than that. Sir Carol Ludovic had been one of his academic heroes in university. He's applying his maths to warfare, eh? Mm. Did he tell you anything about the work itself, or is it strictly under the rose, need to know, and all that? That's the thing, said his friend. The principle isn't that complicated, and while it was clear I wasn't to go chatting about it far and wide... He and Lord Dewhurst seemed less concerned about keeping the lid on the basic theory than on how to make it work. He wants to take our three-dimensional space and fold it, and that puts in a fourth dimension. Carpenter took a slip of paper from his pocket and a pencil from one of the laboratory benches. See, here's the person or item you want to move. Translate, was the word Sir Carroll used. He turned the paper over to the blank side and marked a dot on it. To get it from here to here, you fold space just so. He creased the paper, bringing the dot's location and the desired destination point into contact. And voila! You move the person or thing from one surface to the other. Imagine a gateway folding space so that you could have St Pancreas Station on one side and Rangoon on the other. <laughs> hey presto, your army marches from here to there with nothing in between. Dodgson chuckled. You'd do away with the railways and shipping in one stroke. What would rule Britannia then if not the waves? A thought struck him. Artillery? Hyde Park? Just so, his friend said with a nod. Director Spring said Ravensdale death suggests that someone is working on this too. I'm therefore to safeguard the project against enemy action. And you get to work with Sir Carroll. I'm envious. Dodgson picked up the paper and turned it over. Mm, that's interesting. The writing on this side is reversed, like a mirror image. The other's expression fell. Drat. I shouldn't have taken that away from the project. Sir Carroll has a Leonardo da Vinci obsession. He writes his notes backwards the way Leonardo did. Thinks they'll stay hidden that way. I'd better return this. Ah, said Dodgson, handing him the paper. I see why he'd be careful. Forget about foreign powers. If the transportation industries get wind of this, he'll do well to mind his head. 
He took a last sip from his beaker, then set it in a basin to be washed. I hate to cut this short, but I still have an analysis to run and some research to do. Of course, said Carpenter. If I don't see you tomorrow, then sometime when the project doesn't need me. He placed the beaker in the basin beside its fellow and with a wave departed. Charles Dodgson sat still for a while, contemplating. For the first time he could remember, his friend Carpenter had lied to him. Even in a mirror image, he'd recognised the handwriting on that paper. From a drawer, he took one of his own notebooks and turned to an unused page. Not since university had he considered the question of alternate or additional spatial dimensions. His own interests had taken him in a different mathematical direction. Nonetheless, something about Carpenter's demonstration nagged at him. He pencilled a dot on the page, then folded the paper over on top of it. The paper was thin enough that he saw the dot through it, and he imagined the dot, a point on a plane, a surface of zero thickness, making its way across... across nothing. There would be zero distance between one side of the fold and the other. For that moment, the point was both here and there. In the absence of other influences, where it ended up depended on where it chose to go. All well and good, but something was missing. He stared at the page. Point, plane, two-dimensional surface becomes three-dimensional solid, then two-dimensional again. Superimposed planes, in effect, one plane. Point here becomes point there. The paper sat before him, daring him to solve it. Eventually, it might have been an hour, it might have been only four minutes, he never knew with puzzles, something went click and he grimaced, cursing himself for an idiot. It was obvious. He thought back over the past two days. Evidently it was not so obvious, and yet it was true. The day was over, and the laboratory analysis he had mentioned to Carpenter was long since done. Now it was time for the research. As daunting as the archives of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences were, another part of the London branch was equally formidable, the library. Dodgson was no archivist, but any scientist worth his salt had long since mastered the art of library research. It took him less than two hours to assemble a profile of Dr Simon Ravensdale, renowned biochemist. An advisor to the Royal Army, Ravensdale had improved field rations for Her Majesty's forces abroad and continued to promote public discussion of nutrition issues at home. One seemingly irrelevant item nonetheless seized Dodgson's attention. Exclusive private clubs were gaining in popularity of late, particularly among the upper middle class. Dr Ravensdale had long held membership in one such club, the members of which also included Lord Dewhurst of the War Office. The coincidence was noteworthy on its own, but in light of what Dodgson had seen today, the name of the establishment was particularly intriguing. It was the Looking Glass Club. May I get you some tea? Dodgson asked the friendly but reserved woman behind the desk outside Director Spring's office. Miss Cecilia Yellowboy looked at him with a smile. Why, thank you. With lemon, please. I cannot guarantee that I'll answer your question, though. But of course. After returning with a cup and a teapot, he asked, Does tea always come with a question? No. Most often the question arrives unattended. But why else would someone who hasn't been on the director's schedule for months offer tea? Dodgson wished he had the courage to pull up one of the chairs in the waiting room. I have no idea. Perhaps to find out... Why, he hasn't been on the schedule? No, don't answer that, please. As much as I like the carpets, I don't wish to be called on the one in there. Having nothing to do with his hands, he decided to put them in his pockets. 
But I haven't seen Agent Carpenter today and I was hoping for a few words with the director about his recent assignment. I've been doing some research and I have some misgivings serious enough that I wanted to bring them here. Miss Yellowboy removed a slim volume from a drawer and opened it to a calendar page. He is free tomorrow morning before a 9.30 appointment. If ten minutes will be sufficient, you can come back at 9.20. His stomach clenched. He won't be available today. It's rather important. I'm sorry, she said, with the smoothness of one who has heard the words important and urgent many times and found them vacant. If it helps, Agent Carpenter's assignment might be completed shortly. Uh, right now, he's giving Director Spring a report at a club with lunch following, and the director has cleared the afternoon. His stomach ceased clenching and sank. Thank you very much. May I ask which club? She raised an eyebrow. I believe the director would take a dim view of you interrupting his meeting. Oh, goodness, no. It, it has to do with the research I mentioned. I'm heading back to my lab from here. Very well, then. I don't suppose it can hurt. It's the Looking Glass Club. Dodgson thanked her and, true to his word, returned to his corner of the laboratories. This was not a good sign, especially Carpenter's presence at the Looking Glass Club. On the other hand, it did help pinpoint the location of questionable activity. The club had been established early in the century by three men who had made their fortunes on Fleet Street. Celebrating the newspaper profession as holding up an honest looking glass to the empire, they made the club a haven for publishers and editors. It was an exception to the usual pattern of clubs that initially were solely for the upper classes. Lately, the range of professions represented had broadened. Dodgson could understand Dr. Ravensdale finding a home there, since his writings often appeared in the press, but why Lord Dewhurst would wish to be part of it, Dodgson had no idea. Perhaps the man had multiple memberships, was not unheard of. And just what do you think you're going to do there? He asked himself. You're not an agent. Cloak and dagger? You'd trip over one and drop the other. You're a researcher. You support the agents. They're the ones who know what they're doing. True, another part replied, but they rely on your information. They only know what they're doing because you know what you're doing. A third voice chimed in. So you don't know what you'd do in the field. What of it? Only you know what you know, and if it affects Director Spring, it affects the Ministry and all its agents. If you won't act, who will? Dodgson decided in favour of number three. Exchanging his laboratory jacket for his coat and pocketing some items from a cabinet, he wrote notes summarising his findings and concerns. Might as well show some sense, and departed. Carriage and pedestrian traffic were moderate on Dover Street. Dodgson hoped he would blend in as he stood across from the Looking Glass Club. In particular, he hoped his spectacles would not stand out. They were one of Dr Bullfinch's pet projects, combining the look of common eyeglasses with the magnifying power of artillery scopes. This was the first time Dodgson had tested them. He placed them on his nose and looked towards the club. They obviously still needed work. All he could see were a texture of light grey which disappeared from one second to the next. He removed the spectacles and almost put them back in his pocket until he realised what he'd seen. My apologies, Doctor. He had been examining a stone in the club's granite wall interrupted by passing pedestrians. Let's try this again. He picked out the dining room window and, without moving his gaze, donned the spectacles. Success. Five men sat around a table, several faces recognisable even in the gaslit dining room. There was Hugh Carpenter, and the man with his back to the window looked very much like Woodruff Spring. One face he knew from the papers, Mr Frederick Haverford, publisher of the London Times and member of the club's board of directors. 
The other two faces matched photographs he'd seen in the library, Lord Dewhurst and Sir Carol Ludovic. He was considering his next move when Carpenter turned to face him, and he knew he was, as Carpenter himself once put it, made. You see, an inner voice demanded, field agents know what they're doing, unlike you. There was nothing to do but try and escape, as inconspicuously as possible, but before he could do so much as turn around, the door to the club opened and Carpenter waved to him. Hi, Dodgson. Come and join us, won't you? He knew it was not a question, nor negotiable. He swallowed and allowed Carpenter to escort him into the club and its dining rooms. Gentlemen, this is my colleague at the Ministry, Charles Dodgson. You know Director Spring, of course. Spring did not look happy to see him, and it occurred to Dodgson that he should not have jested about being called on the carpet. That would undoubtedly be forthcoming. Sir Carroll, a portly gentleman with a walrus moustache, sprang to his feet. Delighted to meet you, sir. Come, director. Don't be urged with the man. I'm quite impressed that he has found us so quickly. That shows talent. He introduced Dodgson to Lord Dewhurst and Mr Haverford, but rather than invite Dodgson to sit with them, he said, Gentlemen, in light of this development, I believe we've done all we need to at this meeting. I invite you to join us again tomorrow, if that suits you, Lord Dewhurst. The head of the war office nodded. Then let us adjourn. Mr Dodgson, will you come with me? As they made their way through the club, Ludovic pointed out its amenities with indefatigable cheerfulness. Dodgson, meanwhile, was torn between delight at finally meeting the man he'd so long idolised and dread at what the man might do to him and the ministry. The building was outfitted with a small passenger lift into which Sir Carroll motioned his unwilling guest and closed the lift gate, leaving Dodgson convinced it would never open for him again. "'Please don't be concerned, Mr Dodgson,' said his guide. From what Agent Carpenter tells me about you, I think you'll find this fascinating. The lift descended two floors. Why is it always down into the abyss, thought Dodgson, and opened onto a floor that had clearly long gone unused until recently. Interminted structural braces punctuated a large open area furnished with tables and chairs. One side of the room was dominated by a flat steel circle reaching almost to the ceiling. Tiny mechanisms decorated its surface, coinciding with markings. Are those chevrons? Spaced around the left and right sides of the circle. As Dodgson and his escort made their way towards it, he saw rectangular steel brackets supporting the ring at the floor on either side, making it look like a huge capital letter Omega. The end. That sounds appropriate. They drew up beside a bank of switches, buttons and knobs with the occasional indicator dial. Well, said Ludovic, what do you think of my project? Dante's gate into inferno, perhaps? All hope abandon, ye who enter here? Dodgson cleared his throat invention. Uh, it's Greek to me. Ludovic considered the steel structure. Ha, by Jove, I suppose it is, he laughed. I'd not thought of it that way before. I like you, sir. And what does it do? Dodgson took a breath. I gather you wish to transport things across distances in a way that ignores those distances by making a fold in space. Would this be the transport mechanism? Indeed it would, sir, indeed it would. The mathematician clapped his hands and rubbed them together. And now the question? Suddenly his ebullience vanished, eyes like soy points focused on Dodgson. Why are you here? He had tried to think of a cover story, but nothing would fit except the truth. Because I believe it works. Matter can be moved discontinuously across a three-dimensional surface if it is moved continuously with respect to the fourth dimension. That it can. Lord Dewhurst calls this an ether gate, which isn't at all accurate since the transport path does not pass through the ether of any kind. But from the three-dimensional perspective, I suppose the name makes sense. So why are you here? Just to see it happen? Of course, I have long admired you and I wanted to see if 
Sir Carol blew out a breath through the walrus moustache and waved the statement away. Please spare me. I have all the flattery I need from the war office. Why are you here? All hope abandoned. Dodgson took a deep breath. Because Simon Ravensdale knew too much. Ah. Evidently that was the wrong answer. Ludovic strode to the end of the control bank closest to the ring. Agent Carpenter, if you please. Of course. Dodgson had not heard the other man enter. Carpenter approached them and took Dodgson's upper arms in a gentle but unbreakable grip. His hair was still unruly. Of course it was. To Carpenter, it was now parted on the wrong side. The time has come, said Ludovic, to talk of many things. Of shoes, stepping up to the array of switches and knobs, he twisted a knob. And ships, ten feet away, the flame swelled under the boiler. And sealing wax. He opened a valve, and steam from the boiler flowed through a network of brass pipes to the small mechanisms mounted at various locations around the ether gate. As pressure mounted, tiny governors began to rotate, emitting a cacophony of hisses. Of cabbages and kings! Tiny flywheels and cylinders spun slowly at first, then faster, looking for all the world like diminutive music boxes, if music boxes held tuning forks that rotated like pirouetting ballerinas. And why the sea is boiling hot. Suddenly the ring was no longer empty. An opaque blue field filled the circular opening, darker patches roiling like waves of the ocean. And weather, Ludovic threw a series of switches. Pigs, brilliant threads of blue light stabbed through the wavering blue expanse like lightning bolts, have wings. A final button pressed and the incandescent blue thread snapped into place, each connecting a tiny whirling fork with its counterpart across the expanse. Ludovic beamed as, from the hook by the control array, he removed what looked like a tuning key for a piano, its socket affixed to a steel bar for leverage. Dodgson looked closer and saw that the steel ring was indeed outfitted with strings of piano wire, along with tuning pegs. The machines that now served as the terminal points for the thickening threads of blue light were mounted on pivots and pulled back by stretched springs. With his key, Ludovic tightened the strings, pulling the terminals forward into precise locations. Dodgson watched helplessly. If he could not control the situation, could he at least stall it? His hand fumbled in his pocket. Why would you have chevrons on a ring? he asked. Rafters are for rectangular buildings. Why does their symbol have to do with circles? Ludovic stopped his tuning and regarded Dodgson like a disappointed teacher. Why nothing, of course. These are not chevrons, they're arrowheads, as on Cartesian axes. X, Y, Z... And whatever we wish to call the higher dimension through which we travel. He went back to the tuning pegs, then paused and added, I myself am considering L. Dodgson focused on the tuning and the little machine's positions. So then how do you... Ludovic put the key down. My dear fellow, he said, one would think you a hero in one of those penny dreadfuls, convinced that the evil mastermind will reveal all his plans in advance so the hero can then foil them. Why should I tell you anything right now? There'll be plenty of time once you've passed through the gate to discuss all this in a much less adversarial manner. Dodgson had to admit that the man had a point. He'd always been able to think the problem through in depth, but now he had to do it faster than he'd ever before. Oh, look at it this way, he said. For one thing, I fear that after going through this ether gate, I shall not be of sufficiently sound mind to understand anything. For another, the apparatus clearly has to be brought up to speed, which gives us some time before it is ready. Would there be harm in a question or two? Ludovic made a final set of adjustments, then re-hung the key and stood back. Very well. While we wait, I shall grant you one question if you answer one of mine. 
Why did you say Dr. Ravensdale knew too much? Draw this out if you can. He knew that you had created a club within the club. Ludovic raised an eyebrow. Continue. The demonstration of the pencil dot in the paper is misleading. If you're going to subtract only one dimension from the surface, i.e. the paper, then you should only subtract one dimension from the person being translated. He would not be a single point, but a planular shape. And after each point in the shape has been translated to its corresponding position in the opposite plane, it perforce has become its mirror image. This was familiar territory lecturing about geometry. Dodgson felt oddly more at ease. You have fallen into Mobius's trap. He wrote that using a higher dimension one could reverse a three-dimensional object. By folding space, you've made it inevitable. Once more, I believe the change to be not only physical but moral as well. You are not the Sir Carol Ludovic you were, not at heart. Ludovic nodded. Very good so far, but Dr. Ravensdale was no mathematician. He was a biochemist. Indeed. And he would recall what Pasteur wrote about critical molecules and amino acids having directionality. They can be reversed with accompanying changes in behaviour. A translated man will suffer serious malnutrition if fed nothing but untranslated food, which is why you moved the project here to the Looking Glass Club, so meals could be processed to meet the needs of your colleagues. But after he found you here, he figured out that the translation produced psychological changes as well. That, I believe, is when he decided to expose you, and so you arranged to have him killed using the ether gate, except that the killer selected the wrong destination point for the bullet. What could have been seen as a shooting death, like so many others, instead of becoming a peculiar occurrence, thus involving Agent Carpenter and, well, me. Ludwig applauded. Well done, sir, well done. Except that Dr. Ravensdale didn't simply discover that we were here. It was he who, at Lord Dewhurst's direction, arranged for us to locate here, for precisely the reason you have stated. Still, he did decide to flee the project. We could not allow that to happen, nor could we terminate him anywhere near the club, hence the Hyde Park accident. But why continue the project? Surely you know you can never use the ether gate again. Ludovic chuckled. <laughs> I have no intention of going through it again. It would return me to what I was before I went through the first time. No, neither I, nor Mr. Carpenter, nor your Director Spring. Oh yes, he joined us yesterday. Nor Lord Dewhurst, nor any others of our Looking Glass cadre, shall go through the gate again. We shall keep it our own little secret, to be used for recruitment and for sustenance. This shall be the only apparatus built. Lord Dewhurst will announce with great regret that the Ethergate project is a failure. And Director Spring, with backing from you, will support him. The project will be forgotten, and we can proceed with the business of remaking England in our own image. A backwards image, Dodgson muttered, and immediately regretted it. Surely Ludovic was mad as a hatter. What might he do when angered? But the man only laughed. <laughs> My good fellow, in what direction do you think it is headed now? Despite all the honour given to Her Majesty, God save her. The power in this country is inexorably devolving upon the common man. Soon Mr. Gladstone will scatter the vote far and wide like Father Christmas, and John Smith will grab it up like a greedy child. And what, pray tell, does Mr. Smith know about governing? None whatsoever. He wishes only to fill his own belly. Can you imagine the disaster that will follow when every man jack of us insists on having a say in how he is governed? We shall become a nation of bread and circuses, with every move second-guessed as to whether it would appeal to the man on the street or, I dare say it, the woman. The governing bodies will find themselves locked in argument as each member tries to determine what will keep the people back home from screaming for his head. 
And as a nation, we shall progress nowhere. No, the time has come to turn this trend back from its march towards populist chaos. The power must return to those with the wisdom to use it properly, to move this empire forward to new heights of achievement and power. He chuckled as if at a sudden memory. <laughs> the fools in the House of Usher only want to use this technology to bring chaos. History will leave them behind. I had to do the same. A chill speared through Dodgen. You're working for Usher? Ludovic waved his hands over his head. <laughs> they came to me at Cambridge with an ancient document and the idea for instantaneous transport. I shared my hypothesis with them and in the end, they rejected it. The joke is on them. They toil over ancient glyphs under the ocean surface, not realising they had already handed me the key to the breakthrough they so desperately wanted. You see the result before you. He cast a glance back at the ether gate, noting that the rays crossing the field now stood quiescent. Too much delay, sir. Let us move ahead. He made another adjustment. The growing sounds of the steam pipes resembled a nest of waking dragons, forcing him to raise his voice. Your question? One other thing has bothered me since I learned of the project. The bullet that killed Ravensdale. Its rifling was normal, not reflected. Even if the killer was someone outside your looking glass group, how could he use the ether gate without reversing the bullet? Reaching into his coat pocket, Ludovic laughed. I, no one did, sir. I did it myself. His hand reappeared, holding a pistol between thumb and two fingers. Have you so soon forgotten what you just said? The bullet was on its second translation. I had this with me when I stepped through. One cannot be too careful. He pocketed the gun again. The rays were now sweeping over the watery expanse. Turned this way and that by the steam-driven forks, they wove subtle patterns that transmuted into more complex designs, patterns that the eye could not hold for long because the brain could not comprehend them. Dodgson realised that he was not looking at three dimensions but at four and felt the overwhelming sense that the Ethergate's components were playing cat's cradle with the universe. Before he knew it, the process was complete. Both the dragon's hiss and the weave of light had vanished and once again the steel ring appeared empty. Dodgson was close to believing that nothing had happened at all and that Ludovic had merely created a demented sans et lumière when it occurred to him that what he saw through the ring was not what had been there when they first entered the room. The scene looked similar, but he glanced around and discovered that what he saw through the ring was a match to the far end of the room, where a circle of equal size but without a frame hung in space, showing a view of the control array where it could not possibly be. Ludovic nodded at the other two men. Agent Carpenter, if you would be so kind. The point decides where it decides to go, where it decides to go. Dodgson tried to drum up confidence, but it was useless. I am not a point, and that point doesn't have someone pushing it. He put his feet out in front of him anyway and thrust both hands in his pockets, trying to brace himself against pressure from behind. Carpenter murmured, Please don't make this hard. It won't feel bad at all. At that, his resistance crumbled. Hey, too, Carpenter. This is it. Goodbye to God, country, and sanity. Saint Carol! A red-faced man, wearing a chef's hat and carrying a large bowl into the room and strode towards them. You, Saint Carol! came the Gallic roared accent. You are the one saying my cuisine is no good, that it needs especially processing to make it edible. How dare you? From his bowl, he picked out an object and flung it. That is for your special processing. The object hit Ludovic in the eye, and Dodgson recognized it as an oyster, still in the shell. Ludovic stumbled, and the chef flung another oyster. That is for your expertise. He missed Ludovic, but the shell hit one of the gate's piano strings, which snapped with a loud toing. That is for your audacity! Another missile hit Ludovic in the mouth. You presumptuous walking pile of merde! 
Dodson stood straight, bringing his lower half closer to Carpenter. From his pocket, he pulled a small cylinder and jabbed it into Carpenter's leg. Carpenter could barely murmur, what? Before the sedative from the gas powder injector hit him and he crumpled. Ludovic was still trying to clear his vision when Dodgson grabbed his arm, spun him around and pushed him towards the ether gate. Second translation, mission accomplished. Only after Ludovic was through the gate did Dodgson see the scene beyond it hadn't changed. What he beheld was nothing like this earth, nor he suspected in this universe. The space beyond mixed yellow-greens with something that was almost red but clearly had no place in the visible spectrum. Bilious shapes pursued one another in a horribly distorted landscape. The silence gave way to a bass note that soared at the brain and then rose in pitch like the terrified scream of a child in agony. Dodgson had frozen to the spot. If he didn't look away, he would lose his mind, becoming like one of those dreadful creatures beyond the circle. What forced him to move again was the perception that something, some unseen force, was not simply standing beyond the gate, but reaching through it towards him. Shouting, go, go, to the chef, he ran to the control bank and threw as many switches as he could. Nothing happened. Seizing the pieces of broken piano wire, he furiously unwound them from the dangling mechanism and the tuning peg. He needed to replace them, but how? Behind the steel circle, he spotted several cabinets. Making his way across the nightmare vista in the reaching horror, he dashed to them and searched, at last finding a replacement string. Returning to the gate, he managed to thread the string in its place with the machine housing and then through the peg. The key. Where was the key? Ludovic had hung it. Bye. He found the key in its place. God bless methodical scientists. Turn, turn, turn. The key socket, for some reason, no longer gripped the peg. Examining it, Dodgson found that the metal had softened into something malleable and useless. He angrily cast it to the floor where it splattered. What could he do? He reached to grab the peg with his bare hand, the landscape of horror only inches from it. As he clutched the peg, his hand itself transformed into a metallic substance, into something like a wrench. Turn, turn, turn. As the machine reached its previous position, the eldritch vision vanished to be replaced with the view from the far end of the room, where the corresponding circle had also reappeared. Dodgson looked down at the end of his arm and found once again in hand. The chef had fled. No fool he. What does that say about me? As he turned back to the ether gate, his glance fell on the unconscious carpenter. Another translation needed. Dodgson sighed and hoped carpenter would forgive him for shoving him along the floor and through the gate. He was too fatigued to do anything else. The next morning found Dodgson called on the carpet as he anticipated in front of the director's desk. Carpenter had brought the director to the laboratory first thing in the morning, saying that Dodgson had made a breakthrough in Ludovic's work. As Director Spring stepped through the doorway, he found himself at the far end of the laboratory. Beside him, Dodgson threw a switch and the ether gate just inside the door powered down. Now in the director's office, it was clear that a written report would not be sufficient. Dodgson explained his conclusions using a file folder and a bit of wax he had shaped into the words axiom, which when translated from one side of the folder to the other read moixa. Although Director Spring was known to describe his job as pouring cold water on uncontrolled hypotheses, he welcomed any genuine discovery about the nature of the universe, even if, or perhaps especially if, it could not be easily explained. Without a doubt, Ludovic's project fitted that description. So when did you inform the chef that Sir Carroll was tampering with his masterpiece? Dodgson had been hoping Spring would not ask that question. He had never liked the deus ex machina in literature, and he had no idea how to explain this one. As he prepared to stammer, I don't know, 
Behind him, Carpenter said, oh, I'm afraid I did that, sir. You? The director raised both eyebrows. You were part of the project, yet you decided to sabotage it? I did, sir. At the time, I had no problem with the agenda, but to my shame, I confess, becoming dismayed when it became clear that Ludovic could be holding the reins of power. If I could not, I decided no one would. The project had to wait until I controlled it, but I knew that with Dodgson's talents helping it along, that would never happen. It had to be destroyed. That says something about me, I know, and I'm prepared to face the consequences. Perhaps you can no longer trust me. Spring pursed his lips. Stones and glass houses, Agent Carpenter. I too was in that position, as you recall. But ambition can benefit the Ministry, as long as it stays on the proper side of the looking glass. I also appreciate your confidence in your colleague. Now, as to the project, where does it stand? Is Ludovic's work lost with him? No, sir, Dodgson said. He left extensive notes. We lack his unique vision, but I am gaining a fair understanding of his thought processes, and I believe I've solved the reflection problem. Here is a solution. Or perhaps I should say, already? Do go on. Dodgson picked up the folder. For all his brilliance, Sir Carroll did not bother considering alternatives to his model. However, if we do not speak of folding space, but bending it thus... He opened the folder and flattened it on the desk, then lifted the opposite edges and bent the hole into a cylinder, with one side overlapping the other. We still have superimposed surfaces, but with the same orientation. Translation between the two should be smooth and without complication. The director nodded and sat quietly a moment. Unique vision, he repeated. Some would say he was mad. Would you agree? Not immediately, sir. Consider the cosmos's poetry. Most of it, so far, makes sense to us. There's a fair bit of nonsense, granted, but I believe the true fault lies in our inability to understand it. The universe is orderly. We, on the other hand, are a nonsensical people. Perhaps Sir Carroll gained insight that amplified his sense rather than diminishing it. His was a formidable intellect, and we owe him a great debt. Yet, I'm coming to understand his findings to the point where, well, maybe 18 months, we should be able to station ether gates around the world but only because he got to this point first. What will that do to the transportation industries? asked Carpenter. Dodgson remembered his witticism on the subject. Nothing, said Spring. They shall never hear of it. Do we want the world to know we can place something or someone anywhere we want? Imagine the world becoming a giant game of tag, but with weapons. At a moment's notice, agents sending bombs into throne rooms, parliamentary halls, bedrooms throughout the globe with pinpoint accuracy. What can result but endless retaliation and destruction? No, gentlemen, this must remain our secret, employed with the utmost discretion and with tracks scrupulously covered. And as for you, Mr Dodgson, finally here it comes. I understand, sir, I was reckless. I overstepped boundaries. I risked unforeseeable damage to the ministry, not to mention Her Majesty's government. Yes, you did, said Spring. This time, however, I take into account that you did preserve the ministry and Her Majesty's government. I trust that the lesson learned will find its application at a later date. In view of your performance on this occasion, though, allow me to ask if you have ever considered a change in your status, perhaps field agents training or promotion within research and development. Dodgson had to pause. I should welcome training, sir, should it be necessary for me to go out in the field again, but to be candid, I've had my fill for now. I will gladly leave that part of the job to Agent Carpenter and his fellows. As to R&D, of of course I should welcome advancement. I must say, however, that I had not expected to earn a higher position until... Until pigs had wings, sir. The director nodded. I see. You might talk to Dr. Bullfinch when she returns. I believe she has some thoughts concerning both of those possibilities. 
There was a knock at the door and the director's secretary entered, carrying a note. I beg your pardon, director. This looked like something you would want to hear straight away. Spring read the note. Oh, thank you, Miss Yellowboy. You were quite right. Uh, gentlemen, your presence is required at Westminster Abbey at once. Someone has discovered in the poet's corner what looks like a human form. He lifted an eyebrow. Turned inside out. I need you to confirm whether it is, in fact, who all three of us think it is. To Dodgson, he said, Miss Yellowboy has your credentials. That will be all. Just as they were about to leave, Spring stopped them. His voice was casual. Oh, yes, one last thing, Dodgson. Did you manage to translate those papers Ludwig left behind? In his relief at not being dismissed from the ministry, Dodgson had quite forgotten about that. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, apparently it was a section of ancient Greek text, one that appears only once in the writings of that period. Spring's watery blue eyes focused on him with sudden intensity. Really? By whom? Uh, Plato, sir. He was discussing Atlantis. Dodson was no classical scholar, but considering where he had found these papers, it was surely worth looking into. Yet Spring said nothing else on the matter, though he did share a glance with Carpenter. The dangerous, It's their way The director waved his hands at them and dismissed As they left, Dodgson glanced back, and for the first time in his employment with the Ministry, thought he saw the hint of a smile on the face of Director Woodruff Spring. Nope, not in these three dimensions. He shook his head to clear it, and then hurried to catch up with his fellow agent. Michael Spence is an editor, writer, and voice actor who has written and performed sketches for various podcasts, including those of Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins. He is co-author with Elizabeth Waters of The Treasures of Albion Stories, the latest, A Drink of Deadly Wine, appearing in Sword and Sorceress, issue 28. Prior to his work for the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, his most recent solo work was The Music of the Spheres and the anthology Music of Darkover. Michael has also narrated several audiobooks, including two novels by Marion Zimmer Bradley, House of Zior by Jacqueline Lichtenberg, and most recently, When the Carney Comes to Town, and the forthcoming Any Port in a Storm, both mysteries by Elaine L. Orr. You can find these at audible.com, amazon.com, and iTunes. Theme music composed and performed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, visit ministryofpeculiaroccurrences.com to order Dawn's Early Light, now available everywhere in your favorite bookstores and online in print and digital formats. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. And imagine that studios, Ace Books production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.